now that we've, we've completed our study through the book of Romans, our text today is going to get us back on track with the lectionary by looking at another one of Paul's letters, and this time it's going to be his letter to the Thessalonians. Well, one of two letters that he would write to them, and I think it's a, it's a perfect text to accompany our celebration of Reformation Sunday because Paul's words here really describe not only himself, but call to mind the work and the mission of Martin Luther. As both men, Luther and Paul, continually pointed beyond themselves and, and their own ministry as important as it was to the point of their ministry, which was the person of Jesus Christ and the centrality of the cross. So we're going to be looking together today at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So hear now the words of the true and living God. Paul wrote, You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we were treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. So you see, we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery, for we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you, or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead, we were like children among you. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. Therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of it as our own words or as words from your human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. So just by way of background here, Paul, having received a good report about the Thessalonian believers, is writing back to them. And he's, he's writing to thank them for their faithfulness and to remind them of the time that they'd spent together and, and all the things that he had taught them. And we know about this period of Paul's ministry because in the book of Acts that we studied, really a lot in, in depth earlier this year, he describes his trip there. And it tells us how at first he had great success in Thessalonica. That is, until his, his opponents began to spread rumors about him and to stir up the rabble of the town until finally a riot broke out and a mob of townspeople grab up some of the Christians and they drag them before the rulers of the city. And when they get these Christians in front of the civil authorities and and begin to make their complaint, they say, these men, these Christians, who have turned the world upside down, have come here now too. Now, the mob, the rioters, meant that as, as an accusation and as an insult, but you know what? It was really a compliment. 
What a great thing to have said about you that you managed to turn the world upside down for Jesus. And I can't think of a greater compliment for a Christian. Uh, It's a compliment that was certainly due to men like Martin Luther and the Apostle Paul, but it's one that we should aspire to in this fellowship so that if the Lord tarries another 40 years, the generations that follow can look back on our time here and say, these people, these people have helped to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. But to do that, we have to ask the question, how? How did men like the first century apostles and the early reformers of the 15th and 16th century, these ordinary men from ordinary backgrounds, make such a dramatic impact on the planet that their lives and legacy are still impacting us in 21st century America and around the world? And I want us to talk about that today and look at it through the lens of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians that we just looked at together. And the first thing I think it shows us is that if you want to turn the world upside down for Jesus, you need a bold proclamation. We just read, our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. So now, 500 years ago this week, in 1517, a Catholic priest and theologian by the name of Martin Luther challenged the leadership of the church on a number of issues that he felt the church had drifted into error. Error as to the authority of Scripture and the nature of salvation and the work of Christ. And so in order to call the church back to its first love and back to its humble beginnings, Luther published his 95 Thesis and nailed it to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And with that hammer blow, not only tacked up a piece of paper, but threw open the floodgates of the Reformation. Now, to be fair... Luther didn't wake up that morning and go, by golly, I'm going to reshape the face of Christendom today. In fact, in writing about him, Karl Barth said Luther Luther was like a blind man in the bell tower of medieval Europe who stumbled and, reaching out for the wall, grabbed instead the bell rope. And in the process, disturbing and alerting the establishment that human traditions had displaced the doctrines of the church. You know, when Luther nailed up his list of disputed doctrines, he intended to call for an academic debate. It wasn't an act of vandalism or or a call for a revolution. The castle church door there was the bulletin board for the university where professors listed courses and where religious debates were proposed. And Luther had intentionally penned his frustrations in Latin so that only scholars could see his provocative comments. But in God's providence, it was quickly snapped up by his fellow university students who translated it from Latin to German, printed it in mass, and distributed it all over Germany. And eventually it made its way to Rome into the papal courts. And efforts began to convince Luther to change his mind. But he was convinced of his message. And even more, he was convinced of the supremacy of Scripture over the doctrines of the church and the authority of the Pope. So he refused to keep silent, and in 15. 21, Pope Leo X formally excommunicated Luther from the Catholic Church. That same year, under continued pressure from the papacy, Luther again refused to recant his writings before the Holy Roman Emperor himself, Charles V, who summoned Luther to an assembly of of clergy and nobility where he knew that his life was going to be in danger from the moment that he showed up. But he went. 
he arrived, Luther was brought into the assembly chamber where his writings were laid out on a table before him, and he was asked two questions. Are these your writings? And will you recant? He didn't answer right away. He hesitated. Apparently intimidated by the august setting and the huge crowd of dignitaries and the presence of the emperor. And so he acknowledged in a barely audible voice, yes, and just as quietly, he then asked for some time to consider the second question, the question regarding recanting his statements, because he said that matter involved the salvation of my soul and the truth of the word of God. And his request was granted. The emperor gave him a stay of 24 hours, which were probably the longest 24 hours in Martin Luther's life. And he spent that night in prayer. The next morning, Luther gathered himself. He returned to the assembly, but this time as composed and as brave as he had been intimidated and overwhelmed the day before. And when he arrived, he was asked the same two questions. Would he defend his writings or would he recant? But this time, he was warned that his time was up, and he was commanded to answer plainly. And Martin Luther then amazingly, and in, in an act of great boldness and candor, addressed the emperor and said, Since your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer, I will give it in this manner, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am refuted and convicted by the testimony of Scripture, or by clear argument, since I neither believe the Pope nor the councils as they have erred and contradicted themselves, I am conquered by the Holy Scriptures, and my conscience is bound to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for it is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against the conscience. And in the middle of that stunned audience, he said, Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. What a powerful answer. What, what a powerful testimony, and most importantly, what a powerful faith. And that power that was there for the Apostle Paul and for the early church is the same power that was there for the Reformers 500 years ago and is the same power that is here for us today. And brothers and sisters, we need to proclaim it boldly. We'll move on a little further in our text. For today, the next thing we need if we're to turn the world upside down for Jesus is a trustworthy message. We read, you can see that we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery, for we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people, and he alone examines the motives of our heart. So you notice what Paul says here, our, our message is true, it's not from error. Our message is pure, it's not from impure motives. Our message is honest. We're not trying to trick you. And that message, that good news is trustworthy. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And over 2,000 years later, Jesus is what the world still needs. Because spiritually, you know, the world is no different today than it was in Paul's day or, or in Luther's time. And we need to be continually called back to reliance on Christ and him alone and not be swayed by every new wind of doctrine. Because, you know, when Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel, he wasn't trying to start a whole new church. He simply wanted to reform the existing one, to draw it back to the pure gospel of grace alone in Jesus Christ. And from tiny little Wittenberg off the beaten path in Germany, a movement grew that hasn't stopped. 
a confessing movement that seeks to always underscore the truth of God's Word, the truth that we are saved by grace alone and freed from sin through Christ alone. And so in his teaching and in his writing and in his personal life, Martin Luther pointed to Jesus Christ. Luther preached nothing else but Christ, and today in this fellowship we look only to Christ, who through his suffering and death exhausted God's anger and turned away his wrath that we deserve. We have one message here, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that message is absolutely trustworthy. And whenever and wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, it changes it. Which leads me to the third principle here, which is if we're to change the world, we've got to have a clear conscience. Paul said, never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness. We were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. And you know, of all the the complaints hurled against the church by outsiders, the most common one is all they really care about is your money. All they care about is your money. And that objection's not new. Paul faced it when he came to Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. The church faced it in Luther's day, and quite honestly, sometimes that criticism is well-deserved. In fact, it is that exact sentiment that was the spark that ignited the Reformation. In his thesis, Dr. Luther condemned the excesses and corruptions of the church and especially the papal practice of selling written indulgences for the forgiveness of sins. In January of 1517, just 10 months before Luther nailed up his thesis in Wittenberg, a Dominican priest by the name of Johann Tetzel was commissioned by Pope Leo X to conduct a major fundraising campaign in Germany to finance the expansion and the renovation of St. Peter's in Rome, and to do it by the sale of indulgences. Now, if you're not familiar with indulgences, they're slips of paper endorsed by the Pope, which read, by the authority of all the saints, and in mercy towards you, I absolve you from all sin and misdeeds, and remit all punishment for ten days. Pretty handy. I'd take a couple of them. The Roman Church of Luther's day and still in ours, according to current canon law, claims that that Jesus, Mary, and the saints did so many good works that they left behind a bank of merit they didn't personally need. And that treasury of merit is the possession of the church. And that merit, says the Roman Church, can be bestowed on others as the church wills, as an indulgence. And Tetzel sold them not only for the sins of the living, he collected an even bigger fortune selling them for forgiveness for the dead. He preached these emotion-filled sermons to convince people that their, their dear mother or their departed wife or their stillborn child was at that very moment crying out from the flames of purgatory for some living relative to purchase their release from torment. One message that uh, is recorded, he, he told his audience, don't you hear the voices of your dead parents crying out, have mercy on us for we suffer. We suffer pain from which you could release us with just a few alms. We gave birth to you. We fed you. We cared for you. We left you all our worldly possessions. Why would you treat us so cruelly and leave us to suffer the flames when it only takes a little donation to save us? And not only was Tetzel a master salesman, he may have invented the first advertising slogan because when he arrived at a town, he would call out to the crowd in this little jingle, of course in German, but in English it is, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings a rescued soul to heaven springs. 
soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a rescued soul to heaven springs. I have to admit that's kind of catchy. But brothers and sisters, it is as insidious as it is clever. In contrast, Luther said, if that were the case, if that's true, then the princes of the church would and should wish to give away all of their money, even if they had to sell the Basilica of St. Peter's itself, if it would save that many souls, as many souls as the crooked hawkers of indulgences claim. And so he accused Tetzel of deception and theft, writing that a person steals not only when he robs a man's safe or his pocket, but also when he takes advantage of it. And Luther said that because there's a fourth mark to people who would turn the world upside down for Jesus, and that is a sacrificial heart. We read, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked for you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living among you, so we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached the good news. Did you know ministry that changes the world costs everything? It costs everything. You've got to do more than just preach the gospel. You've got to live it out in service to others for God's glory and not your own. And the author, uh, Fred Mauser, in writing about Luther's life of service, tells us that Luther was a reformer and a theologian. He was a professor and a translator. He was a prodigious author and, and lecturer and hymn writer. Musician, friend of students, mentor of pastor, and pastor to countless clergy and laity. And he did all these things and lived out his entire life only in the service of Jesus Christ, including his later years, which one author said were filled with both illness and furious activity. In 1531, although he had been sick for months and suffered from exhaustion, he preached 180 sermons, wrote 15 tracts, worked on his Old Testament translation and took numerous trips to fledgling churches, but always pointing to Jesus Christ until in 1546 he finally wore out. But you know, before he died, he wrote to his supporters. He said, please, please don't call yourself Lutheran, but Christian. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine. How could it happen that I, a poor stinking bag of worms, could end up having the children of Christ called by my miserable name? He said, let us rid ourselves of all party names and call ourselves only Christians. Only Christians after Christ, whose teaching we hold fast. And that thought naturally leads to the final essential for those who would change the world for Christ, and that is an urgent appeal. Paul wrote, You know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share his kingdom and glory. Therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you did not think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. You know, the great hallmark of the ministry of the Apostle Paul and of men like Martin Luther is the preaching of the word. You know, the medieval church had developed a theology of sacraments, but Luther rediscovered the doctrine of the word. And he said, you know, the apostles wrote very little, but they spoke a lot. They wrote very little, but they spoke a lot. So the ministry of the New Testament is not engraved on dead tablets of stone. Rather, it sounds in a living voice and in a living word in which God accomplishes and fulfills his gospel. 
You know, in his lifetime, Luther preached over 2,300 sermons, even though he said he was terrified of preaching because he realized that what was preached may make the difference between heaven and hell for those who listen. Until finally in 1546, in what would be his last sermon in Wittenberg, where he started, Luther said, true preachers must carefully and faithfully teach only God's word and seek its honor and praise alone. And that was his warning to pastors, but he had a warning to the congregation too. He said, in like manner, the hearers must say, we do not believe in our pastor because he tells us of another master, one named Christ. To him alone, he directs us. And what Christ's lips say, we shall heed. What Christ's lips say, we shall heed. And brothers and sisters, we stand in that long tradition today. That tradition of the first century church of Paul and the apostles who proclaimed Christ and the reformers of the churches in Europe who proclaimed Christ and the Mayflower pilgrims whose faith we carry that proclaims Jesus Christ, men and women of God who turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. And that only happens one way, through one proclamation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, who calls us, our God who calls us in repentance and faith to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we give you thanks for your forgiveness and your faithfulness to your people in every age, Lord, as you continually call us back to yourself. Fill us anew, we ask, by your Spirit to hear and receive your promises and to keep our covenant with you. Where we are corrupt, we ask you to purify us. Where we are in error, direct us. Where we're in need, provide. And, and when we stray, Lord, reform us as you have done these 500 years in the world and for 40 years in this place until your Son returns in glory to make all things new. Because it's in his name we pray. Amen.